Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. All right, welcome everyone. We're reading this week from Korach. The people of Israel are wandering in the desert, Bamidbar. The time in the desert is, among other things, a time of unrest among the Israelites. Korach is a Levite who will foment a rebellion against Moses. And we're going to be talking today with Rabbi Larry Englander. Now, as always, please stick around if you're interested after our Parsha discussion to find out more about Rabbi Englander. He's a really interesting teacher and author and thought leader. So, Rabbi Larry Englander, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to get to talk to you. You are a rabbi and an author. We'll talk more about your book later. And the Rabbi Emeritus of Solo Congregation in Mississauga, Ontario, and currently serving as an adjunct rabbi at Temple Sinai Congregation in Toronto. But for now, I want to talk for a little bit about the, about the weekly Torah portion. We're reading Korach. And the question that you posed to me before we sat down today was the question of why shouldn't Korach have a shot at leadership? So why don't I turn that question back on you? Okay, so the way the Torah portion uh, starts off, Korach, we find out, is a Levite, and he has a whole bunch of Reubenites along with him. And he comes to Moses, who's also a Levite, and he says, so what's so hot about you? You haven't done such a great job up till now anyway. I mean, you've been schlepping us through this desert. Uh, We've been running out of water. Uh, We're certainly running out of patience. We've had uh, nations attack us. Uh, It's taking us a long time to get to the promised land. So Moses, maybe you should step down and I should take over. And one of the things that Korach says is, since all the people are holy and God is in our midst, why shouldn't I have a shot at this leadership as much as you? Right. I actually think of this as the origin of the term holier than thou, (laughs) right? Korach says to Moses, all the people are holy. So essentially, what's so holy about you? And Moses throws the same thing back to him. But there, there's a very interesting midrash where Korach and Moses have this little bit of a, uh, of a dialogue. It, it was crafted, I think, to reveal Korach's ulterior motive. So Korach starts off and he says, I have made this garment entirely of that special bluish purple dye that you're supposed to put on the tzitzit of the talit. And he's actually harking back to last week's uh, parasha. Right, that's how it ends, I that's think. That's how it ends, parasha. right, that, uh, that we're commanded to put tzitzit on, on, on our garments and to wrap around uh, the tzitzit of this thread of purplish blue. So Korach says, I have a whole garment made out of that dye. So therefore, I would assume I don't need to add the tzitzit. Am I correct? And Moses said, no, you're not correct. You still have to add the tzitzit. And then Korach says, well, just a minute. I've got an entire room, or in his case, an entire tent filled with Sifre Torah, filled with books of the Torah. And of course, we know that part of the Torah is the Shema and all of those um, paragraphs that are contained within the mezuzah. So Korach says, since I have 
several volumes of Torah with all of these paragraphs, I would assume I don't need to attach a mezuzah to my door because my house is filled with these passages. Am I correct? And Moses says, no, you're not correct. So then Korach basically says to him, you know, this is completely irrational. You're being so unreasonable. These commandments can't come from God. They must come from you. And therefore, if you can make these rules up arbitrarily, I can supplant you and become the new leader. If an entire garment of techelet doesn't need the tzitzit, if an entire tentful of Sifre Torah doesn't need a mezuzah, therefore an entire people that is holy doesn't need you to lead them. I can do it just as well as you. And that's, that's where Korach makes his slip. When he says that uh, the entire people are holy, kol ha'eda kulam kodashim, kadoshim. And he fails to remember the promise where God says to Moses, the atem tihuli mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be, not that you are. In other words, and, holiness is aspirational, right? As opposed to something we are, it's something that we're striving toward. It, it, that's right. It's an ongoing aspiration, if you wish, uh, just, just as you put it, and not, not a state of being uh, that you happen to, to be at right now. Hmm. It's interesting. I, first of all, I love this story because this is the rabbis putting their stuff back into the, the Torah. Korach never knew from a mezuzah. Korach doesn't know the kinds of halachic debate that are being described in this midrash. So this is clearly the rabbis trying to work out what it means to, to be holy. And also maybe some kind of a sense of striving thoughtfully toward holiness. That it's one thing to just have an entire garment of blue. It's another thing to thoughtfully tie fringes onto the corner as a reminder to me. Exactly. And, and that is where the rabbis get their punchline in. It's not just having the raw materials at hand that make up your, your, your state of being. It's using those materials to perform a mitzvah. And by using the materials to do a mitzvah, that's what leads you toward holiness. So holy is an action then. Holy is not a, a state of being. It's not a thing you are. It's a way that you act, something we're always striving toward. So that leads me to a question that I've been wrestling with, and I want to share with you and okay. ask for your insight on this. Korach and everybody else knew already that they were going to die in the wilderness. God had already told them they're going to wander for 40 years for that generation to die off and for the younger generation that hadn't known slavery to enter the promised land. Right. So the question that I'm wrestling with and I'd like to pose to you is why would Korach want to become the captain of a sinking ship? Oh, that is a fine question. Yeah, what's in it for, right? Right. I mean, is, is it possible that Korach just doesn't see the end game? That he's here to be in charge? That he's simply looking to, for that power as its own end, as opposed to looking out for what's in the best interests of, of the people, which would be to lead them slowly forward toward the promised land? Well, I like that. That's a really great answer. Yeah. That, that his ego is so tied up in it that, that he just doesn't uh, see the end game at all. Yeah. I, I think there's two ways that I've kind of struggled with it. One, I guess, is the is an easy way out, but it might be the historically accurate one to remember that these documents were probably written down much later. 
Israelites. And so if we imagine that this passage was written during the Israelite kingdom, when there already was a king and there already was a temple and there already was a priesthood, the priesthood was a really um, elite job. And we know uh, historically that there were rivals to the high priesthood. So maybe the story of Korach was written in order to substantiate uh, the Aaronite priesthood and the tribe of Levi. And right. sure enough, what, what follows right after Korach is that uh, all the tribes are asked to bring their staffs and to place them in the ground. And it's only Aaron's staff that produces buds. So putting Korach together with that story, it may be to future readers to say, don't mess around with the establishment. All right? right. But getting back to your point, I think there's another way of looking at it. Maybe Korach didn't remember that that generation was going to die out, but he wanted to die a hero. Hmm. And that he wanted his kick at the can. He wanted his chance to lead the people and to exert his power, come what may. Uh, maybe he even had the notion that because of his stature, he would be able to reverse the divine decree and let them go into the promised land. He got his wish to some degree, because when you look at the book of Psalms, there are some Psalms uh, that start off, Livne Korach. So his descendants not only lived, but became part of the Levitical choir. Ironically, Korach, who's so much out for himself alone, becomes in some ways the progenitor of this group choir, right? This community choir. And so maybe that's his ultimate punishment, so to speak, is that his descendants become the stewards of the people in, in worship rather than him being in charge Oh, that's very nice. That's very nice. So uh, they land up uh, serving, which is which is what they were intended to be anyway. Yeah. And ultimately, maybe that's what Korach got wrong was that this was all this was about community. And when he was out for himself, he wasn't thinking about what was best for the people in connecting with each other and supporting with each other and striving together for holiness. Very nice. Yeah. Well, Rabbi Englander, thank you for this discussion. Oh, a pleasure. And thank you for that interpretation That's uh, of a story that's been driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. That's our conversation with Rabbi Larry Englander. If you'd like to hear more about him, learn about his new historical novel, and hear our conversation about Judaism, stick around. And as always, thanks for listening, and have a great week. So now I have some questions for you and about you okay now that we've talked about the parsha so first of all i just want to say you have the best rabbi job which is retired rabbi <laughs> but i understand that you've been busy anyway so uh tell tell us what you've been up to you actually let me just go back and reiterate that you were the founding rabbi i believe of congregation solel in mississauga and if i'm correct served there your entire career and as a student rabbi before is that That's right, right. So I started uh, in my in my um, fourth year of rabbinical school uh, in 1973, and uh, by the time I was ordained, the congregation had grown to enough sides that they took a risk to hire me full time, and uh, we never looked back. Uh, it, it kept growing, and uh, I, I was there for 41 years altogether. So. Uh, uh, it, it was certainly a, a, a very fulfilling uh, role. Uh, it was a wonderful congregation to serve, and, and uh, many of our best friends uh, are still uh, Solelniks. So, you know, we see them all the time, or at least we did until... Uh, uh, <laughs> until we all stopped seeing each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, it must have been incredible to really grow 
a congregation and to and to watch it grow together with your time as as a rabbi over the course of what four decades well i also wish this for you rabbi streifer that there will come a time where you will be officiating at the bar or bat mitzvah of someone whose parent you you officiated at their bar or bat mitzvah uh and weddings of course and uh so when those, you know, uh, generational things occur, um, they're very fulfilling. And, and also the rabbinate gives us an opportunity to play a role in people's lives at very significant occasions. And um, that builds a bond as well. And, and of course, the longer you're, you're in a place, the more opportunity uh, presents itself for that. Yeah, it's very special. Yeah. So, um, so what have you been up to since retirement? All right. Well, first of all, my wife, Cheryl, told me that I flunked retirement. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I really think that retirement is really an anachronistic term. I read a book. I think it's by Mark Friedman. It's called Encore. And I highly recommend it for people who are who are reaching that stage. He says that really now uh, in our parents and grandparents generation, they worked like dogs until they retired in their mid to late 60s. And they probably didn't live that much longer afterward because they were really worn out. He said, we're in a different framework now that really th there's three stages. There's your educational stage as a student. Then there's your career stage. But then after your career stage, there's your encore stage. Hmm. And in your encore stage, you can do anything you want. You can take the skills that you learned during your profession and during your schooling and apply them in, in different and creative ways. Or you can learn how to play the cello. You can do whatever you want. Uh, and, and a mixture of those, I, I think, is really uh, what makes this encore stage uh, special. So I, I, I guess what I've been doing is a lot of teaching. Uh, Temple Sinai accords me that opportunity. And I also teach at Solel. And uh, uh, I've been doing a, a courses at the Life Institute uh, at, at Ryerson University and, and other you know, teaching opportunities out of town that, that, that I've really enjoyed. So th that certainly keeps me busy. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing I, I guess that's always been a passion of mine has been uh, Zionism. Right. I, I mean, certainly I have a love for Israel and as a reform Jew with progressive liberal values, uh, it's important for me to be engaged in Israel in a way that will contribute to that. I'm sure I'm not the only one and I'm sure your listeners can sympathize with this, that I've become very frustrated with the politics of Israel. Yeah. And that with all the craziness that's going on, with all of the extremism that we've been seeing uh, in, in many different guises, um, it becomes very frustrating and also very discouraging. And so the way that I found to um, express my love and to continue my love for Israel is through the arts, especially through music and poetry. Hmm. And I've been doing a lot of research on this, and I've been doing a lot of teaching on this. How, for example, um, popular Israeli musicians who we would consider to be completely secular are now introducing religious Jewish themes into their music. Very interesting. And as a result, I think what they are doing, and it's true in poetry, it's true in the visual arts, I think what's happening is that they are helping to create a new form of Judaism 
that's going to affect us as well and to which we can contribute as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've really come to the conclusion that the agents of change in Israel and in Jewish life today, it's going to come not from the politicians, but from the artists. Interesting. You know, Israel is very much, on the one hand, it's a secular country. And most Jews in Israel are secular, but on the, on the other hand, Judaism is actually deeply embedded into Israeli culture. Uh, yeah. The language of the, of, the, of the Bible, of the Tanakh, the language of the prayer book even, and um, Torah and Talmud, the holidays. Uh, so there is, there is this overtone of Jewishness, even in a world that is largely non-religious. And, and so you're seeing that in, in art and in, and in music also, right? Yeah, and, and I think there's not a firm division as we have here between the religious and the secular. I think there's an overlay. They blend into each other uh, in Israel in ways that we're just beginning to appreciate. One of the musicians is a rock musician by the name of Kobe Oz. And he's one who has started introducing these religious themes uh, uh, into his music. He even, even put out an album called Mismore Nevuchim. Uh, you know, which comes from Maimonides, Moraine the Guide for right. the Perplexed. So he's writing melodies for the perplexed. And uh, he I, I listened to an interview he did uh, on Israeli radio, and the interviewer said to him, uh, are you telling me that you're becoming Dati? Are you, are you now becoming Orthodox? Hmm. And Kobe Oz answered, he said, no, not in the least. He said, the reason that I'm doing this is I'm looking at secular Israeli culture, of which I've been a part, I've been a rock musician for, for a long time now, and I just see it leading to a dead end. If we continue along this secular path, we're just going to be this nondescript nation that is kind of like an imitation of European countries, but has nothing to offer in and of itself. So he said, I'm going back to my Jewish roots because that's where the uniqueness of Israeli culture really lies. And I'm bringing that in. I'm not becoming Dati, but I am, I am now exploring Judaism in my own way. And I say, good for him. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, it was 100 years ago that Ahad Ha'am, who's a, one of the great early Zionist thinkers, essentially wrote something like that, where he, Ahad Ha'am was far from an Orthodox Jew, but he believed that this new Jewish enterprise, it wasn't a state yet at this time, but that this new Jewish enterprise had the ability to be a cultural center for the Jewish world, as opposed to Herzl, who Herzl did great things, but Herzl was looking for a secular state that would be a haven for Jews. Achad Ha'am really wanted a Jewish state that would have not a religious character, but a culturally Jewish character. And so I think... I, I, th I think maybe you're seeing the flowering of that in, in this kind of thinking. And I'd like to think also, you and I are both reform rabbis. I'd like to think that the rise of the slow rise of progressive Judaism in Israel has something to do with that also, with the sort of the breaking down of the barrier between what is religious and what is secular. And the, the, the idea that there are multiple ways to be Jewish and to engage in Judaism and to, I think, to celebrate Jewish identity. And maybe we're seeing the flowering of all of that in Israel right now. Yeah, well, we're also seeing, especially in Reform synagogues, that a lot of, Isra a lot of this um, Israeli popular music exploring Jewish roots has found its way into the new Reform prayer book. Right. And that means that, that these songs are being sung in uh, Israeli Reform synagogues. Just to give you an example, 
Um, there's a song that was, uh, the music was written by um, an Israeli composer who I believe to be secular, but the music was, uh, the, the lyrics were written by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who hmm. was ultra-Orthodox chief rabbi of what was then Palestine. He died in 1935 before the state. The song is called Kanfei Ruach, and Rav Cook teaches us that all of us have wings of spirit, wings of mighty eagles that will allow us to fly aloft uh, and find our spiritual home. Um, that is now being sung in many reformed congregations in Israel, and I hope it will in Canada too, because we just finished a program called Rise Up for Reform Judaism in Israel, mm -hmm. which was partially a fundraiser that we did here in Canada, but it was also a way of introducing more of Israeli culture to uh, Canadian Jews. And the, the centerpiece song of that program was Kanfei Ruach, uh, Wings of Spirit, that was arranged beautifully by Judy Edelman Gershon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to send a copy to you, hoping that you can use it in your congregation, and uh, as well as other uh, congregations. And uh, in many ways, I'm hoping it can become the, uh, the theme song of uh, Canadian-Israeli Reform Partnership. I love it. And so here's a a, a, a text that was written by an Orthodox rabbi set to music by a secular Jew being sung in reform synagogues around the world. Uh, and uh, be, yes, and, and uh, the music was written by an Israeli and the arrangement was done by a Canadian. So, I mean, it just wow. brings, yeah. brings everything together in such a beautiful way. And the song is so uplifting. I, I mean, I've listened to it uh, probably over a dozen times now, and I still feel that surge every time uh, I listen to it. If I can get a copy and if I have permission, then I'd be, then maybe we can include it as part of this, um, this broadcast, as part of this oh, podcast. Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay, I'll, I'll be happy to send it to you. Yeah. That would be great. So you mentioned Maimonides a while back. Um, in terms of the guide of the perplexed. And I, I also know, so every week, whenever I interview someone, I always ask, what's one book we should all read? Two weeks ago on this very podcast, Rabbi Emma Gottlieb shouted out your novel, Prince of Healers, which I also read a couple weeks ago. So tell us about your about your book that you've just finished. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Um, it, it's called The Prince of Healers, and, and the chief character is Maimonides. And um, since it's a historical novel, I can play around with uh, the actual events. Um, so uh, in the novel, Maimonides meets the great Syrian warrior and Sultan Saladin, mm -hmm. and they form uh, an alliance in bringing about um, a kingdom uh, or, or an empire of mutual religious understanding among Jews, Christians, and Muslims. So th their meeting is, is, is fiction. Uh, and their quest is fiction. But I think Maimonides himself really had this vision that there was a, a, a layer, uh, a, a very high layer of uh, all of the three Abrahamic religions where we all meet. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the reasons I actually wrote the novel was I really feel that Maimonides needs to be more of a household name than he is and, and that he deserves to be much better known. And I'm hoping that book will, uh, will, will help to promote that. And also, of course, the idea of, uh, of interfaith understanding and, and, and uh, joint cooperation mm -hmm. uh, is something that's very prevalent in our own time. 
Well, and Maimonides certainly was a Jewish scholar living in a Muslim world. He he quotes Muslim scholars. He he's he he actually quotes and is off is often citing Arabic translations of ancient Greek writings. He was living in quite an I guess ecumenical or interfaith world. And so maybe I mean it certainly is fiction what you're writing, but it, maybe it's not that much of a stretch to think that Maimonides would have believed in the kind of interfaith harmony that you're describing in the novel. Oh yeah, uh, he definitely did, but his ecumenical world was a very elite one. I, I <laughs> there were there weren't a lot of players in it, but uh, uh, I, I I would hope they had some influence. The, the Muslim scholar uh, that was a little older than he uh, is uh, Muhammad ibn Rushd, who we may know as Averroes in, in the Western world. Once again, in the book, they become buddies. Uh, they, they quite probably at least met each other. Uh, Maimonides certainly read uh, Ibn Rushd's writings, uh, but they were certainly of like mind. And then about a, a century or so later, uh, Thomas Aquinas from the Christian world, um, he acknowledges that when he wrote his systematic theology, he had Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed open on his desk. So we know that there's a connection there. So I call them the three amigos uh, uh, of classical medieval uh, theology. I like that. So let me ask you a couple of questions, if it's okay, about you and your own practice. Is there one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful? Whew, okay. Um, I guess I can answer that in two ways. Number one, the Pesach Seder has always been... Uh, that's my that's my favorite holiday and just having family and friends around the seder table halavai this year uh and, and also just the content of the seder and the theme of the seder uh, uh freedom and, and uh, recounting our history has always been very powerful for me um what i've been learning this is a very private comment i guess but what i've been learning during the pandemic when we can't get together for congregational prayer is that in the morning, um, and I may not even do it with a talit and kippah on, I may do it as I'm preparing my breakfast or, 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 or my tea, but saying the morning blessings, the birkot hashachar, hmm. which are all blessings of thanksgiving, you know, uh, the one asher natan basech vivina, who is, you know, who has given us the ability to distinguish between day and night, who opens the eyes, etc. you know, all those blessings, uh, the blessings for body and soul that, that we say every morning, I've been finding those to be very powerful. In uh, And very often when I say them, uh, I'm looking out the window at this beautiful tree uh, uh, outside our place, looking at birds flying, looking at the sky, looking at flowers that we've planted on the balcony. And, and that just gives me a powerful sense of life and a powerful sense of gratitude. Mm -hmm. I'm just happy to be alive and, and grateful to be so. It's beautiful. And you know, those, those blessings that you're referencing, they're part of the morning service, of course, right, right. but in their original context, and actually this is one of my favorite Talmudic studies is in Tractate Brachot, where it puts those blessings into the context of the morning routine. You open your eyes and you say the blessing for opening your eyes. You take right. your first steps and you say the blessing for, for, for walking. You, you sit up and you say the blessing. Thank you, God, for basically raising me up. Right. And so there is this sense of, Maybe actually back to our point about the Torah portion, this sense of seeking holiness in everyday moments, of striving toward holiness, that even the act of opening my eyes, there's holiness to be found there. Even the act of sitting up in bed, 
can be construed as this moment of holiness and this moment of gratefulness. I think it's a really beautiful ritual. And each of them have a double meaning. So when you say pokeh chivrim, opening the eyes, you're not just talking about your eyesight, you're talking about opening up your spiritual eyes, right? To, yeah. Or your intellect to, to new insights uh, that this day may bring. Uh, when you talk about hamechim mitzadei gaver, who prepares each person's steps, it's the ability to walk, but it's also the ability to plan our future and to step into the next days ahead uh, <laughs> and, and to think about where your life journey is taking you. So that's the beauty to me of these blessings that you, that you're saying both of these things at the same time they were so smart those rabbis i'm telling you yeah <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite jewish holiday well, well pesach yes for sure uh, oh right you said pesach of yeah. course um all right one last question other than your book what book do we all need to read there's one i'm reading right now called uh, The Lady of Hebrew and Her Lovers of Zion, written by uh, Hillel Halkin. And it's kind of a, um, each chapter deals with another uh, Jewish slash Israeli author, going all the way back to pre-state authors, you know, like Bialik, uh, uh, Aleph Dalit Gordon, and people like them, but going all the way up through contemporary uh, uh, writers as well. And uh, it just gives you a sense of how this very young country has produced such a, a wealth of literature. Hmm. Um, so, so I'm really enjoying it. it, it, it I'm really enjoying that book. That, Thank you. Fun. A yeah. young country and, and actually a young language in some ways, because Hebrew has only been revived as a, as a modern language for 100 years or so. That's right. And I've just started reading a no an Israeli novel called The Secret Book of Kings by Yochi Brandes. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently it's one of the best-selling novels uh, uh, that, that Israel has ever had. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's about King David. But yeah, it's a historical fiction about uh, the time of King David, but told from a northern tribe's point of view. Right. Yeah, which, yeah it's very interesting. Well, Rabbi Larry Englander, thank you for your time, your wisdom for our conversation today. It's been nice getting to sit down with you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rabbi Streifer, and uh, all the best to you. Well, that's our show for this week. But as promised, to end off, here is the song that Rabbi Englander mentioned earlier. It's called Kanfei Ruach, Wings of Spirit. And as he said, the text was written by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who was the chief rabbi of Israel or Palestine back in the 1930s. The melody is by an Israeli artist, Avigail Uziel Amar, and this arrangement is by Judy Edelman Gershon, performed by various cantors and cantorial soloists of Reform congregations around Canada and Israel. The text means, Human being, rise up, for you have great strength. You have wings of spirit, powerful eagle's wings. Enjoy, and we'll see you next week.
Zulech.